CityCast. This is part two of our conversation with Vancouver Sustainability Director Doug Smith. In this episode, we pick up on our conversation with Doug from part one and learn more about what it takes to build a climate resilient city. So Doug, according to you, do you believe it's possible for a city that is growing and building new developments to be climate resilient? Or are those two things counteractive? Yeah, it, that is a really difficult conversation. Um, we, we've had people say, you know, hey, the best way to be green is just not to grow anymore. And then you don't have to worry about it. Unfortunately, with that statement is growth is going to happen. The planet is growing. People are especially coming to Canada. Canada is a very, very good place to live. And so growth will happen somewhere. So the choice is, do you want the growth to happen in a progressive city where we're actually really working hard to reduce our emissions? Or do you want it to grow in a city that doesn't care? And they just want to bring as many people as possible, as cheaply as possible, raise their taxes as much as possible. And so We've, we've decided in Vancouver, we actually want to attract growth here, not only because we think it's good for the economy and it's good for people, it's a good place to live, uh, but also because we think we can do growth in a green way, in a way that, that helps reduce emissions and does it in a, in a friendly way. And from a development perspective, one of the most important things you can do when you're building your communities or, or, or determining where your community is going to go is making it a complete walkable community. Uh, it's all great to, to have all this technology with heat pumps and making green buildings and zero, you know electric cars. That's all nice. But the most important thing you can do um, is right at the ground level by making sure your community doesn't require people to commute. Um, you go back thousands of years and we've always lived in cities and villages where you live in the village, you work in the village, you buy your groceries in the village, everything happens in that in that village in that city. And we really need to go back to that model. It was in the early 1900s when the car was invented, when cities started getting kind of smelly and congested and busy, that people said, you know, if I can afford it, I'm going to go live in my own house out in the woods somewhere, uh, out in the suburbs, and I'm going to drive into work. And it was a nice dream for a while, but actually doesn't make a lot of sense. And so if you look in the in the late 60s, you had Jane Jacobs and you had this movement towards you really need a livable city where people can live and work and uh, and shop and play and thrive all in a relatively small space so they can walk, so they can take transit, so they can ride their bike to those spaces. And not only does it make for a uh, more resilient city, a healthier city, uh, for a, um, a greener city, as far as greenhouse gases goes, it's actually much more uh, economically um, attractive. Uh, you look at some of the big American cities where they have uh, a nice big downtown and then everybody's living out in the suburbs. The downtown is dead on the weekends. It's dead in the evening. So you have all of this resource and infrastructure and space that is not being used. Uh, really a waste of energy, but all of those businesses are also not being used as well. And so it's not very good for them. Whereas if you go to downtown Vancouver, it's open 24 hours a day. You have a business district, you have people living there, you have entertainment district, you have theaters, and you go on a Tuesday night at 10 p.m. and the streets are filled with people um, and all the businesses are doing well. It's, that's a really nice model for a city. You said that one of the key things is to make communities more walkable or transforming transit. How exactly do you build local capacity to enact these changes, uh, such as building passive houses or electrifying the transit fleet? 
It, it is tricky, um, both from a community perspective and a uh, political perspective to spend money and, and to make changes. Uh, people really just want to do what they've always done, but they want, want, they, they want it to be better. Um, so one of the really good approaches is to set a long-term goal, is to work with your community, to work with your politicians and say, who do we want to be and when do we want to be there? Do we want to be a zero emission city? Do we want to be a thriving economic city? Do we want to be a equitable city? And how long, you know, and what does that look like? What are the actual metrics? So, you know, my expertise is, is um, the environmental side. And so we set a target in Vancouver that by 2050, we're going to be zero emissions. And it was relatively easy for our council and our community to go, okay, yeah, that, that sounds good. It's, uh, it's the right thing to do. We understand it. And it's pretty far away. We're not too concerned about it. It also then allowed us to start reverse engineering that and saying, well, by 2030, we need to be a 50% reduced emission city. And people are like, okay, that, that's a little closer, but I understand it. And then we say, and today we need to put a policy in place uh, for our buildings, for our transportation, for our uh, communities in order to make the changes now because things take a long time to change in order to be ready for 2030, to be a 50% city by 2030 and a 100% renewable city by, by 2050. And it's still challenging for people to accept those, yes, we need to put transport pricing in, we need to retrofit our buildings. But if you can point to, you know, we agreed on the 2050, we agreed on the 2030, uh, therefore we need to do this today, it's a pretty obvious leap of logic. And it really helps people get buy-in and understand that that's the right thing to do and that we need to change if we're going to improve. Um, we can't keep doing what we're doing. We can't just say, you know, the city's pretty good. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing and nothing's going to change. It's, it's just not reasonable. It's not fair. And it's not actually sustainable. Um, things, we need to either drive them in a direction that's going to improve or things will get worse. There is no such thing as uh, stasis or status quo when you're talking about humans or cities or, um, or systems. You know, you need to drive towards getting better or it's gonna just get worse. I'd be interested to know why you think it's important to get people excited about this type of work. A lot of the work required to really move the needle on climate change is more technical in nature, such as building retrofits and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So how can you get the general public on board to push for political and societal change at such a large level and have them be excited about it at the same time? Yeah, it, it is really difficult to get the public excited about some of these policies. Um, they're technical, uh, they're in the weeds. Uh, you know, most people don't know what a heat pump is. Um, and they're afraid of change and people are afraid of having to spend more money. And that's perfectly normal. So in order for me and for other people like me to get the big policy moves that we need, we actually need the politicians to say yes and go ahead and do it. In order for the politicians to say yes, they need the social license. They need the community to also say, yeah, we, we get that. We want to do it. And so we, we have to paint a really clear broad picture of what we want our future to be. And we can't just say our future is electric vehicles and heat pumps, because uh, that just looks like the same world we have right now, except it, you know, the buildings are the same, except they got a heat pump in them, big deal. We really need to paint a picture of where we want to be as a society, 
um, we want more green space. We want more water in our world, we, you know, streams and creeks and ponds. We want more biodiversity. Uh, we want to be able to walk more. We want to see more people and interact with people more. Uh, we want health and we want businesses that are going to thrive. And so all of the work that we do, we have to kind of wrap in this vision. And, and it's not just a marketing scheme. It's the truth. Like it, these are the, the cities that we're building, but we have to do it through some technical means. But at the same time, we want people to be able to get around their neighborhoods. We want them to know their neighbors, to live in, in denser, more compact community communities where you're actually connected and reliant on your neighbor and your local businesses to do things. Uh, we want people to be able to just walk out of their house and hop on a bus and, and get to school quickly. Those things are the type of vision that people can relate to and understand. And if we can explain that vision clearly enough to people, they will then support the politicians who will then support us to do kind of the boring policies, which is the heat pumps and the electric vehicles. Definitely, I think it's key to market climate action as an optimistic vision of the future for all. But what do you think about those with a lower socioeconomic status or those living in poor communities not necessarily viewing climate action as a priority? In fact, some of these people in these communities might even view climate action, such as building spaces for sustainable agriculture, as gentrification. So how do you navigate and reconcile these differences across people in society and ensure that climate action is done in an equitable way? Yeah, that's that's a really good and very difficult question. Um, You know, how do we balance the work we need to do for climate with economics, um, with lower income people, with people who are just trying to get by day to day and they don't even have a car, much less an electric car. So part of it is actually not leaving them out. So as much as I described earlier that we're going to focus on commercial buildings and focus on, you know, large single family homes, we're also going to do a lot of retrofits to rental buildings and low income buildings for energy and seismic. But we're going to do it in a way that is going to be cost neutral for those buildings. So we're going to work with other levels of government, the provincial government, the federal government to bring in really big money because you need lots of money to do those retrofits and retrofit those buildings in a way that is Um, cost-effective so it doesn't raise rents, um, and also not disruptive. So we're not displacing people and kicking them out of their 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 place for, you know, months at a time. Um, and we think we can do, we think there's ways to make these buildings more energy efficient with, with minimal impact on the people themselves in the building. So that's part one of my answer is um, we need to include people and not just exclude them and assume they'll be sorted out later. The other thing is we created a climate and equity working group to ensure that we didn't that none of our policies are actually doing harm. Um, at the very minimum, we don't want to harm people who uh, you know, buy these policies, especially vulnerable populations or low-income people. Um, and in the best case scenario, obviously, we want to make things better for them. And a lot of the research we've done on the equity side indicates that if you design your policies for low-income communities, for vulnerable populations, for people of color, um, you actually will end up writing a policy that works for everybody. Um, we often get pushback from people saying, well, you should be focusing on businesses or, or low, low or middle, middle class, because those people are really struggling as well. And yes, it's true. Everybody's struggling. But if you write your policies to focus on the, the most vulnerable populations, those policies will work for everybody and they will benefit everybody. And so that's our approach is to really focus on those groups. Um, and 
and also realize we can't solve everybody's problems. There are going to, we, we have a lot of money and a lot of energy going into housing, going into uh, local food, uh, supporting people who, who need help with opioids and other issues in Vancouver. So there is that work that's happening. We're doing our climate work and we're working really closely together to look for opportunities to, to cross support both groups. Um, we have a really good partnership with our housing team. Our housing team, uh, we know in sustainability that I can't push a policy um, related to greenhouse gases if it doesn't have an affordable housing benefit there. And my housing team also knows that they can't put a housing project forward unless it's going to be a zero emission building. And so we work really closely together to try to tick those boxes uh, that, hey, this is going to be a low income building. It's going to be made out of wood and it's going to be a zero emission building. And by doing that, it, it maximizes not only support from the community, but also we can bring in more funding from other groups too, from the federal government, from the provincial government, because they've got lots of programs that do all of those things as well. And so the more boxes we tick, the more support we can get to move these projects forward. One thing that you mentioned is the importance of interdepartment collaboration within cities. So how do you get other departments that are working on housing or transportation to incorporate a climate lens to their policies? And as the sustainability department, through which channels uh, do you engage with other departments in the city? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that is so true. Um, sustainability groups are often not successful because they work in a silo. And um, not because they necessarily want to, but they, they end up, it's really hard to influence other groups, uh, whether they're you know the transportation group or somewhere in operations or solid waste. So for... Um, a while, let's go back like 10 years, um, we were not very good at this. We would sit in our little little silo and we would write policies and then we would take it to council and get the count the policy approved. Then we'd throw the policy over the fence at another department and say, hey, here's a policy. You have to do this now. And they would be like, what's this? We've never seen this before. And And I think that the big lesson for us was when we put in a policy for lead buildings way back in 2010, 2011, um, where we required all new buildings to be built to a lead gold standard and uh, all new rezonings, I should say. And so we gave that to our, our, our development group and said, you guys, you have to do this thing. And they kind of went, all right. And, and then five years later, we went back and said, hey, how's it going? You know, how many lead buildings have you got? And they went, what? How many what buildings? Like lead buildings. You have to do lead. Do we? We didn't know that. And like, yeah, we told you five years ago. And they're like, really? No, we, we weren't sure about that. And so they weren't tracking it. They weren't looking at metrics. They, they weren't doing anything. And it wasn't their fault. It's just we didn't help them in being successful. So we realize now we've put a whole bunch of new programs in place to support the rest of the city in being successful with this work. So one of them is if you're going to write a policy for another group, uh, they need to be involved right at the very beginning. They need to buy in. They need to tell you, I can't do this policy unless I have these resources, unless I have this training. We have money to provide the training, to provide the resources, to make sure people are successful in implementing it. We put metrics in place to make sure we're measuring. How is that policy doing? Is it working? Is it not working? Can we tweak it? Can we make it better for you? Uh, so that's one way to support other departments in doing sustainability things. Another thing we do is, um, it is related to money, is essentially uh, if someone approaches me and says, I need support uh, to do a new policy or to, I'm, I'm thinking about doing a policy on deconstruction waste uh, for buildings, but I don't really know where to start we can help them because a lot of these groups are not experts in sustainability. 
So I can help them either by providing a project manager or some research or bring a bunch of students on to support them, or I can give them $10,000 to go hire a consultant to do some work. And so supporting other departments and being successful is really, really valuable. Um, another way we support other departments is by giving them staff. I, I've done oh half a dozen, maybe a dozen deals now where I've approached a part department. I'll give you a great example, our uh, facilities group and said, hey, you guys need to do more. Um, more work on reducing greenhouse gases. And this would have been seven, eight years ago. And they said, we're really busy. We can't afford it. We don't have any staff. We, we, it's not really a priority for us. So I said, I will pay for a person to work in your department for two years to reduce greenhouse gases. That's their only job is to reduce greenhouse gases in city owned buildings. And they said, fine, if you're gonna pay for it. And so we hired the person, they worked in that department. They kind of reported to me with a dotted line and we paid for it. And at the end of the two years, I said, okay, I, my funding's gone. I can't pay for this person anymore. We'll have to let this person go. And they said, but, but this person is saving us $600,000 a year. We, this is, person's amazing. They're doing all this new work. We've learned all these things. This is great for our department. And we said, great, you have a business case now. Let's hire a person full-time to do that job. And so we've done that exact same thing multiple times across the city where we've helped fund a position, a position within a department to um, move that agenda forward and support them. And then the last thing I would say we do to really support departments is it's kind of a double-edged sword is we hold them accountable. Plus we um, hold them up when they do the, a good job. So every year I report to council in a very public way. Um, uh, we, we do like a big website and we do a booklet and we do you know, big public outreach about our progress on all of our work we've committed to doing, whether it's buildings or bike routes or bus stops or local food or water reduction. And I stand in front of council and I say, here's how we're doing. And when we're not doing so well in a certain group and council says, well, how come we're not hitting our water targets? I actually bring up the general manager from engineering and say, okay, you need to explain why you're not hitting your water targets. They are the ones who are accountable, not me. And so that makes them build this into their work plan and make them accountable for it. But when someone does an amazing job, I also hold them up in front of council and publicly and support them and say, look at this amazing work they're doing. They're supporting all of our goals. So it's, it's multiple approaches, but they're all needed to support the whole city in moving forward as opposed to just sustainability. So outside of building interdepartmental connections, I'm also curious as to how you build knowledge and capacity in the public, private, and civic spheres. I know Vancouver has the Zero Emissions Building Exchange Network that they've created that works as a knowledge hub. Uh, so how do you go about building such knowledge hubs to share new technologies and information that can be useful in the city's transformation? Yeah, knowledge sharing or capacity building is really important. It doesn't matter if Vancouver becomes the greenest city in the world if nobody else is doing it. Um, and there are hundreds of other cities who are doing amazing work across the world in making themselves greener. But we need that to be thousands and thousands of cities, not just hundreds. And so to build capacity, I think there's really two sort of approaches. One is in the um, private sector. So these are the people who design the buildings, who build the buildings, who maintain the buildings, who retrofit the buildings, um, or whether it's transportation and, and people who operate fleets, or whether it's people who you know use water. You need to support the private sector. And so you can do that through groups like our Zero Emission Building Exchange, which we stole from New York's uh, Building Energy Exchange. And I think they borrowed it from Brussels, which has a, um, uh, an excellent and building design program. And so the idea there is 
businesses or building uh, manufacturers or developers uh, would have to share their information about what worked when they're doing a zero emission building, what didn't work. They would have to do videos. They would have to do tours of their building during construction. So other developers, other architects, other engineers can learn about what's working and what's not um, to encourage everybody to raise their, their game. The, the second half of that, I think, is in the public sector or the private public sector. So this is other cities. This is other utilities like BC Hydro. Uh, this is the provincial government, the federal government. We need all of us to be working and pulling in the same direction and figuring out what works and what doesn't. So we do spend a lot of time working with other cities, not only in British Columbia, but across North America and across the world, um, both leading cities, but also cities who want to learn more and sharing our information uh, so we can all learn from each other. And then we also work with other levels of government. Uh, the provincial government, and the federal government in Canada won't be successful unless cities are actually doing a ton of work to, to change how they do businesses and vice versa. Cities won't be successful unless the provincials and federal governments also step in. So we need to really all pull in the same direction. For sure, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And uh, throughout our talk today, you've stressed the importance of collaboration and moving forward. So keeping that in mind, what would be your key recommendations for a city like Hamilton or other municipalities across Canada that are hoping to create their climate resiliency plans? Right, yeah, for, for cities like Hamilton and, and other cities that are thinking about just sort of starting on this journey, um, it's really important that you start on the journey. Um, a lot of cities are like, oh, we're so far behind or we haven't done it yet or it's gonna be too difficult. It's like, no, it's like anything, you just need to start. So make, so make a commitment to doing something. The second thing you wanna do is set really really reasonable, ambitious goals. Um, I think, you know, we, we've already agreed as a country, Canada, that we need to be zero emission by 2050 uh, in order to meet our, our Paris climate goals. So every city should just say, yeah, okay, we're going to be zero emission by 2050. That's our goal. I think Hamilton and other cities should absolutely make that statement and, and agree to do that. It doesn't mean it's going to be 100% possible to do it, but you need to start somewhere with that type of ambition. Once you've got that ambition in place, you need to look at fairly simple things. What are your major sources of emissions in Hamilton or other cities? And then what are the ways to approach those? And don't worry about playing in your sandbox. Don't worry about, um, you know, oh, well, that's, a, that's industry and that's outside of our, our control. Um, you, cities have a ton of control and sometimes it's through regulation, direct influence where you can say we're going to change the rules and you have to do this and sometimes it's through working with other levels of government by asking for changes to building codes or changes to industrial requirements or transportation rules and sometimes it's working with industry industries want to be successful they know this is where the, the world is going to zero emissions and they probably want to do this as well so uh, don't worry about staying in your in your lane um, you need to focus on everything that you're responsible for within your within your city. And the city of Vancouver has kind of set it up like a pyramid. It's, it's a really nice way to look at it. At the very top, we have this goal. We're going to be the greenest city in the world. We're going to have zero emissions by 2050. Below that, we actually have um, some fairly um, clear targets, you know, how much, what our transportation mode split is going to be, what are, how many zero emission vehicles we're going to have on the road, how many buildings we're going to retrofit by a certain time period, what is our greenhouse gas by 2025, by 2030, um, what's our water reduction targets, what are our air quality targets. So you have all of those targets that you can actually measure and report out publicly on. The next level below that is 
what are the actions that you're going to put in place to hit those targets? What bike routes are you going to build? What regulations are you going to put in place? Which levels of government are you going to meet with in order to say, I need you to change the building code so we can, we can move this forward? You actually need strong actions to drive those goals, and they need to be directly connected with those goals. You should not just a dotted line, like, like a nice, hard, you know, big black uh, Sharpie pointing towards that's what that this action is going to lead towards this goal. Below those actions, you need money, you need budget, you need resources, you need staff who are going to do this, you need funding in place to do it. And then the next level below that is going to be accountability. Uh, you need to report, you need metrics, you need to say, are we on track? Are we, do we, did we get the money we asked for? Did we do the actions we asked for? Are we getting the greenhouse gas and the mode splits and, and the things that we um, promised we would do? And you need to report out on that, on the, on those pieces. And with that sort of pyramid in place, you can have a fairly successful project. I mean, that's just good project management. It's not just a climate thing. That's just a good way to um, run an organization. So I would recommend cities kind of set up that kind of model and you're not in it alone. Uh, reach out to other cities, reach out to other levels of government and you'll be surprised how much you can learn. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, this stuff has been going on for 10, 20 years. And so even if a city's starting from scratch, there's probably some simple things you can do to get yourself rolling in the right direction and that momentum will build and you'll just keep on going. I think the biggest lesson from this is that cities need to start setting clearly defined goals and targets and back that up with their budget and positive action will undoubtedly follow. And speaking of setting goals and targets, the federal government recently released their new climate plan. So what are your thoughts on it and how do you think it will change the outlook of climate action in Canada? And what impact do you think it will have on climate action at the provincial and municipal levels? It was a, a really, really positive step in the right direction. Like, like any advocate, um, for a program, there, I'm always going to be able to find shortcomings and be able to criticize bits and pieces that, that aren't perfect. Um, and, and just like when I put my policies forward, a lot of members of the public say you didn't do enough. And other members are saying you didn't, you went too far. So, you know, it's never going to be perfect, but I am really impressed and really proud of the Canadian government right now with the work they've done forward, uh, moving forward. They've got funding in place to support a lot of the work. They've made clear goals and targets around electric vehicles, low carbon fuel standards, um, and, and green buildings, which are really, you know, those are the big, big pieces. They've talked about industry. And two things that jump out at me that are probably the most important are you need to put very strong economic signals in place in order to support uh, reducing our carbon. And the two ones they've done is they've done the low carbon fuel standard, which is kind of a cap and trade system for, um, for fuels for vehicles, which we've had in Vancouver and British Columbia for a number of years. And it's been really, really effective in, dri in driving change. And the second one is the carbon tax. Uh, we, you know, had a carbon tax in British Columbia back in 2008, and it's really helped drive our economy. It set clear messages to industry. It's had no negative impacts on our community. And the fact the federal government not only brought in a carbon tax a few years ago, but also is now setting longer term goals to 2030 and saying by 2030, it'll be $170 a ton is really, really powerful and positive messaging for the country, for the provinces, for the cities, for businesses, and even internationally. I've got colleagues I work with all over the world. And when I announced this to them, uh, they were so impressed, especially in, in the United States, uh, that we would do a national carbon tax of that value uh, was really, really um, important. So this will have a significant 
impact positive on Canada as a whole, but in Vancouver specifically, it makes all of our business cases much more attractive. Natural gas is very, very cheap. And so whenever we switch to electricity, uh, which is also very, very cheap, uh, people still complain like, oh, it's going to be more expensive. It's like, okay, instead of spending you know, $50 a month, you're going to spend $80 a month. Uh, it's still cheap. Uh, but at the end of the day, the fact there's a carbon tax and a proper price on pollution now, uh, those business cases are so much better. And it may, it almost completely gets rid of our economic arguments for not switching to electricity. So that's really positive. Um, and the thing that it helps people have a conversation about is that this isn't a tax. These are real costs. The cost to climate change on Canadians, on the world is anywhere from 200 to $300 a ton. When you look at how much we have to spend to deal with pollution, to deal with sea level rise, to deal with heat issues, forest fires, smokes, I mean, it's billions and billions and billions of dollars. And the only way we're going to save ourselves from having to spend those billions of dollars is by spending millions and millions of dollars um, on on reducing the amount of pollution we do. So putting a cost on carbon, a, a tax on carbon, is a really, really cost-effective way to save us money going forward into the future. It's more like good insurance. Thing. It's, yeah. It's like doing proper maintenance on your house or your car, right? If you're not replacing the roof on your, you could save a lot of money not replacing the roof on your house when it starts leaking, but eventually it's going to cost you more than it would have cost to just fix the roof. So a lot of people were positively surprised to see the targets that the federal government set, uh, especially the high carbon tax, but many others were also critical about it being too high and they claimed that the provinces would not be able to meet such high targets. What do you think about that? Um, the carbon tax is not too high. Uh, it might even be a little bit low. Uh, but at $170 by 2030, it will likely get the country on track to hit our targets, which are 50% reduction by, by, um, uh, by 2030. It might be 45 Canadian-wide. But um, that's about the right number. It also has a lot of... I wouldn't say loopholes, but it's got a lot of um, ability for groups to say, well, I can't pay this because of this, but I have another way that I can manage it. So um, it's not like it's going to be like the GST and just apply to everything uh, everywhere. It, it will actually have a lot of rules about where it applies and where it doesn't apply. So it's not like companies are going to go out of business and bankrupt immediately because of this carbon tax. And it's also got a 10-year window here. It's going up $15 a year over the next 10 years. That is plenty of time for any business to plan ahead. And in fact, it's the right thing to do for governments to say, we're going to do this. You need to be aware of it. You need to start thinking about your business and how you're going to transition your business. If you're a construction company, you've got a lot of big trucks. You might want to think about buying electric trucks. If you're a, uh, a building owner, and you spend a lot on natural gas to heat your building, it's gonna get more expensive. You may wanna think about eventually going to electricity. So it's, it's a responsible thing to do. And it's also a necessary thing. At some point, every government in the world is going to do this. At some point, this will get so bad, climate change, that we will be panicking and if you know, you look at what happened with the pandemic, it took a couple of countries a little bit of time and, and some countries still aren't on board um, to actually ramp up and start getting people to wear masks and to shut down businesses and to change how we operate in response to the pandemic. 
climate change will be worse, guaranteed. Eventually, every country on the planet will go, oh my God, we need to change how we're doing business right now. Otherwise, we're either not going to be in business because um, nobody else will buy any of our products because it's too carbon heavy, um, or uh, you know, it's just, it's killing all of our the people who are living, you know, we're getting floods and heat waves and other things we need to change. Those things will happen. And for those countries that are not making the changes progressively over time right now, it will hit them like a ton of bricks in 10 years. And it'll hit them just as hard, if not harder than the pandemic did. Governments will just show up and go, sorry, we're not, you know, you can't drive to work anymore. Uh, you can drive to work one day a week. So you can't get deliveries every day to your store anymore. You can get deliveries one day a week. And those impacts will be severe and have huge economic impacts and people will lose their jobs and it will be really, really difficult. A smart and, and thoughtful government will do that gradually over time. So when other governments start panicking and having to do really drastic things, we can say, yeah, we're okay. We're ready for that. We've been planning for that. We've already transitioned to electric vehicles. We've moved away from coal. We've moved away from natural gas. We're fine. We're not going to be impacted by those and it's not going to cost us billions of dollars to trans trans transition into a green economy because we've already done it so it's it's a really forward thinking thing for our government to do and it's protecting us from long-range risk or even medium-term risk it's definitely very exciting to see that our federal government has set such an extensive commitment and i think it will give a lot of people hope for the future uh but as we near the end of this episode, what do you hope the listeners will take away from it? Yeah, I, I think that the big takeaway from here for me is that um, th this is not about taking away stuff from people. This is not about restrictions on communities and, and, and businesses. This is actually about making our society a better place, making it healthier, making it more open, making it more equitable. And sustainability is really just about sharing it's about ensuring that we're not overusing the resources. Right now, we're talking a lot about climate and, and carbon as kind of that resource that we don't want to abuse. But it's about everything, whether it's food or water or even air, um, that making sure we all have equal access to clean, clean, healthy communities. And that's the direction we want to go in. And it's kind of hard to argue against that. Uh, why wouldn't you want to go in that direction? And more importantly, we're really, really adaptive. Human beings are pretty smart. We're, we're very clever. And we can find ways to do this uh, that works for community, that works for businesses, that ensures that everybody um, has a good economy. We just need to decide to do it. And once we've decided to do it, we can do it. We'll figure it out. Thanks for joining us on CityCast. We'll see you soon with another new episode.